Hello, and welcome to The Scope. Our student-run and recorded podcast is put on by the Student Collaborative on Health Policy, a student group that works with Duke's Margolis Center on all health policy-related matters. I'm Amy, a freshman at Duke studying global health and psychology. In today's podcast, we will be discussing patient-centered care. The Institute of Medicine defines patient-centered care as providing care that is respectful of and responsive to individual patient preferences, needs, and values, and ensuring that patient values guide all clinical decisions. Researchers from Harvard Med School, on behalf of the Picker Institute and the Commonwealth Fund, found that there are certain practices that lead to a positive patient experience, and their findings form Picker's eight principles of patient-centered care. The eight principles are as follows. Respect for patient values, preferences, and expressed needs. Coordination and integration of clinical care. Informing and educating the patient on their progress. Providing emotional support and alleviation of fear and anxiety. Involvement of family and friends in the patient experience. Continuity and transition after discharge. And facilitating a patient's access to care. To offer a clinical perspective on patient-centered care, we are joined today by Dr. Neil Prose, a pediatric dermatologist at Duke Health, a research professor at the Duke Global Health Institute, and a co-director of the Duke Health Humanities Lab. Dr. Prose, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Neil Prose. I'm professor of dermatology and pediatrics and global health at Duke. My main interest is in provider-patient communication, both in the United States and in low- and middle-income countries. And I also teach a freshman course at Duke on empathic communication. Next, why don't you tell us about your experience in patient-centered care? When did you first learn about patient-centered care? And when did you begin implementing it into your patient relationships? Sure. I think I learned about it before it existed. That is to say that Many years ago, before people used the phrase patient-centered care, I discovered that the part of medicine I most cared about was the ways in which we connect with patients and their families. And at that point, maybe 25 years ago, I began taking courses in how to teach communication skills to medical students and eventually to residents and older physicians. And it just became apparent to me that the ways that we connect Communicate, express empathy are literally half of the work that we do as healthcare providers. And the other half, of course, is diagnosis and treatment. But it seemed to me at the same time that most of our medical education, 99% is devoted to the diagnosis and treatment part. And the other parts that are all kind of skill-based and teachable and learnable about how you communicate with patients is very rarely taught. So that became my passion. And I, I guess as I was learning how to teach this, this material, I found myself integrating it into the ways I personally related to patients. And then I suppose over the years, I started to develop my own methods, techniques, sayings, metaphors that helped me to make those connections. It seems like you've been learning about this for a long time. What specific strategies have you picked up that you use when you are first meeting with a patient in order to develop a relationship of trust and support? That's a wonderful question. I think that the starting point for me is to keep in mind the big picture, which is that 
patients and doctors often come from literally different worlds. And we talk about the world of medicine, which is the way that doctors perceive the world uh, of health around information and diagnosis and treatment. And then the way that patients may perceive the world, which we call the life world of the patient, which is more about feelings and uh, emotions and financial realities. And the job in the interaction is somehow to navigate a connection between those two worlds. It's easier said than done. And it's difficult for us because a lot of us are explainaholics. We like to talk people out of the way they're feeling. So with respect to how one begins the interview or establishes a connection with a new patient, I think there's, there's several different pieces to that puzzle. One thing I strongly recommend is to simply uh, take a deep breath and pause before entering, even entering the room to be with the patient and using that breath to make a specific decision to pay attention because our minds are so wandering and we are so distractible, infinitely distractible, that just the notion of paying attention requires a conscious effort. If we don't do that, we're going to be thinking about all kinds of things that are extraneous to the patient interview. And then uh, there are other simple things that create connections. One is just sitting instead of standing, because um, studies show that the, when the doctor sits in the presence of the patient, the patient perceives they spent more time than they really did, and standing has the opposite effect. And eye contact, because in most cultures, not every culture, that's a very important way of showing respect and interest. And the problem we face nowadays is because of the computer in the room, that it's very easy to uh, fixate on the computer screen and literally ignore the patient. And so we have to, again, develop methods to both use the electronic health record when necessary, but to turn to the patient completely at various times during the conversation to signify that we're actually paying attention. I think it's interesting how you brought up the drawbacks of technology in the modern clinical setting in terms of communication. To follow up, how do you find balance between the personal aspect of developing a relationship with your patient with the more technical aspects of diagnosing the patient and filling out forms on the computer? It's very difficult, and I think we're also dealing often with major time constraints for a particular um, visit. There's no simple answer to that question. What I tend to do is do a lot of my computer work after I've seen the patient, not during the patient encounter. Other providers prefer to do it otherwise. I simply can't do both at the same time. And when I have to type in something into the medical record or type in a prescription, I always explain to the patient what I'm doing kind of apologize by saying, I need to put in your prescription now. And if there's some information that we can share on the screen, then I'll share the screen, not share the screen in Zoom, but turn the screen towards them so they can see what I'm looking at. And I think those are the ways we can at least uh, decrease, if not eliminate the impact of the electronic health record on how we communicate with patients. Since you mentioned Zoom, could you talk more about navigating efficient patient-provider communication during telehealth visits? It's very difficult. I think we do our best to connect. I think occasionally there's a positive aspect, given the fact that I'm in the patient's home and they're in my home, and it's sort of very democratizing. We're more on the same level. So good things happen. But there are so many ways that Zoom kind of leaves us wanting. A lot has been written about dissatisfying experience of Zoom communication. 
And so I think that's the problem. And also, frankly, there's a huge socioeconomic digital divide around who can use Zoom well and who can't based on their access to good internet, based on their access to good, uh, a good laptop as opposed to a phone, based on language. So telemedicine is not work for everyone. And I'm afraid that that's a very neglected aspect That's a really great point you made on the way that a patient's socioeconomic class impacts their access to telehealth and healthcare in general. I think it connects well to the next topic of discussion on how individuals who are members of marginalized groups in their community or those who experience a language or a cultural barrier tend to be wary of the medical system and they tend to ask fewer questions. How can efficient patient-provider communication bridge racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic disparities in patient care and outcomes? Yeah, I think that's a really, it's a complicated question and a great question. There is a bunch of different issues across those various differences. And with respect to race, for example, in this country, there's such a long history of systemic racism in medicine that many Black families have personal experiences of being treated uh, unfairly in the health system. And so folks come to our offices with a sense of distrust that they've come by very honestly through their own experience. And so I feel that our jobs, especially as when there's racial discordance between provider and patient, is to make a conscious effort to win trust starting with eye contact and sitting down, but the conversation, just think about what is the most respectful way to communicate with this patient and their family. I think that the way we can get there is through an attitude that I call empathic curiosity. Approach the patient with an open mind and really try to understand who he or she is as a person. Then things can change in a remarkable way. And by contrast, if you don't do that, The only way you're judging or evaluating the patient is through your own implicit biases, through the stereotypes that informed your opinion of the patient when you walked in the room, which we all have. And so a certain amount and a certain kind of curiosity that I think is vital to making those connections. When it comes to patients from other cultures, it's a little different. Part of it is the same empathic curiosity because we can't master every culture The idea of cultural competency is kind of unreachable in general. The best we can hope for is really some kind of cultural humility. And cultural humility also involves curiosity. It's wanting to know as much as one can about the other person's culture. I find that the times that I can connect with somebody across cultures, either by speaking with them in Spanish, for example, or by expressing some interest or even better, some prior knowledge about the country they come from, It makes a big difference because immigrants in this country, they feel extremely anonymous. There's something about their entire lives that has been lost to most people, which is everything that came before they arrived here. And if you have a patient from, for example, Senegal, and if you know a little bit about the music or the geography or the location or anything or the political situation, it's also a very amazing way to make a personal connection. I really like how you use the phrase empathic curiosity and how providers can use this curiosity to try to understand a patient's need. Yeah, a patient's needs and preferences may evolve over time, depending on their life circumstances. 
How do you ensure that patient values regularly guide clinical decisions? I think that's a really good point, Amy. And patients evolve, the society evolves, medical knowledge evolves. And so I think that the, the trick is not to put the patient in a box and treat them as the same person throughout the entire course of their illness. There's so many things that change, also based on their positive or negative experiences with treatment. I think it's the same thing. If your curiosity is continuous, then it's possible you're going to find out what has evolved in the patient's life, what has changed. And then hopefully that'll enable you to make the kind of adjustments that you, that you need. I really like that metaphor, not putting your patient in a box. And for your patients that you have had a relationship with for a relatively long time, how have you witnessed the impact of patient-centered care on their well-being? I'm interested to learn how it affects their perceived levels of stress and how it increases their sense of social support. Yeah, I, I think that there are very specific techniques that are part of patient-centered care that do exactly that. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I think that a lot of patients, the stress they experience is the fear of not being heard. And this is something we all carry around with us. And I think if there's any kind of basic human instinct around the healthcare experience, it's the desire to make sure that the provider has heard what we had to say. And I find that, for example, the remedy for that situation is simply to say back what I've heard. So if a patient describes a a new set of symptoms or a concern or a worry, if I can just say back to them at some point, so what you're saying is, and kind of summarize what I've heard, everything in the room changes and the stress level goes down because that fear of not being heard has gone away. And it's possible for both parties to relax and then have a more constructive conversation about the next step. That's a great point. And when you mentioned how patients fear not being able to tell the provider everything that they need to say, it reminded me of an experience that I had when I was shadowing a doctor at an internal medicine clinic. So one patient came in and he had a list in his pocket with everything that he wanted to discuss with his doctor that visit. And he was able to get through everything on the list. And it seemed like he felt content with what they had discussed So he left the room, but then he came back just five minutes later and he was like, Hey, I'm sorry, doctor. Um, can I ask you something really quick? I just remembered something that I didn't have written down on my list. And I just thought it was really nice to see how that patient had the desire to tell his doctor everything that he had on his mind and that the doctor was willing to listen to any thought that he had. Yeah, that's fascinating because different physicians have different ways of dealing with a list. And there are a lot of derogatory comments that I don't agree with about patients who come with a list because they can take up a lot of time. And on the other hand, if you think about it from the patient's point of view, the reason one makes a list is because you you don't want to forget anything. And uh, it's good to prepare for the visit. So I try to do my best to honor the list like the person you were shadowing. And even when I do, somebody comes in with another question at the end. I find that a way to, one way to not prevent, but minimize that is I end every conversation with a patient by asking what questions do you have? And it may jog their memory to think of the question that they need to ask you before they have to leave and then come back into the room. 
I really like that strategy because it seems so simple, but I can imagine how effective it can be. Moving on to our next topic. Patient-centered care requires a well-coordinated community of healthcare professionals to address patient needs. Tell us about the documentary You and Your Wife, documentary filmmaker Rhonda Klevansky, created named Keepers of the House. Why did you find it necessary to create a documentary on the meaningful relationships that housekeepers develop with patients in hospitals? Yeah, the film, we made it about two to three years ago. The idea of the project began with a conversation that I was having with a colleague about the way that hospital housekeepers provide emotional support for patients and their families and how we often ignore that and really don't even take the time to get to know the housekeepers who are working on our wards and in our clinics. And one of the housekeepers that we spoke with described uh, his work as saying, I, I, I don't think of myself as a housekeeper, I think of myself as the keeper of the house. And that became our uh, title. And then one thing led to another and Rhonda interviewed eight housekeepers, just asking questions about that aspect of their work. And we ended up with a 15 minute documentary. And it's our hope that the documentary will be used in medical schools, nursing schools, all kinds of learning environments to teach lessons about empathy, about humility, about teamwork, and about also, hopefully, after seeing the film, that members of the team, like doctors and nurses, will be more aware of how important it is to recognize the work that the housekeepers are doing in a way that's valuing to them. I really enjoyed watching that documentary, and it opened my eyes to the perspective of a housekeeper and the work that they do in a hospital setting. Do you mind talking a bit more about how housekeepers are able to build relationships with patients? Yeah, it's a combination of things that the housekeepers do sometimes better than we do. The ingredients that we noticed that were so critical to the housekeeper's positive role included things like paying attention, noticing things that weren't quite right. For example, in one case, a patient who was in a much too small a room and she helped them move to a larger room so they could be have room for their family back in the pre-pandemic age. And also the fact that housekeepers are often more on an equal social plane with some of the patients, and that enables them to understand and communicate better. And just their willingness to take the time to listen. So those are the ingredients that we noticed that really stood out. And for us kind of served as a model of the kind of things we should be doing with our patients. And it's crazy to think that housekeepers are doing such important work in the hospital, yet, and the documentary discusses this, housekeepers often feel devalued at work. How would you envision a shift in the healthcare system to place a greater appreciation and value in housekeepers' work? Yes, this, the film tells a particular story about a, what happens when a patient dies. And even if the housekeeper has developed a really important relationship with that patient, there's often no conversation with the housekeeper about the fact that the patient has passed away. And they may just show up the next day and the room is empty and that's all that happens. There are other examples we've learned about later where uh, housekeepers just feel ignored. For example, if a doctor is standing in the middle of the hall and they're trying to push their heavy cart, you know, the, house, the doctor may just not get out of the way and or walk on a, uh, a freshly waxed floor, things like that that are very discounting. And the research shows that 
the measure of whether housekeepers feel valued or devalued in their work depends on these daily interactions with doctors and nurses to a very large extent. And so the extent to which we can recognize the housekeepers, get to know them by name, for example, and include them in as much as possible in the functioning of the team, then it would be better for them and also better for us and better for our patients. Yeah, and I think those are simple but powerful strategies to try to ensure that housekeepers feel valued in their work. So that was my last question. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Prose, for joining us today and exploring the many facets of patient-centered care. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. This episode was produced and written by myself. Thank you to Charlotte and Josie, our editors-in-chief, and the entire Scope team. And most of all, thank you to our listeners. Tune in next week to hear the latest news from The Scope.